Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to episode 347 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is a shocking murder from an idyllic spot in Devon. The contrast between the events we'll talk about today and the family and friends enjoying themselves just metres away, enjoying their time together on holiday, I find somehow makes it even more disturbing. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story by playing our guest a month and year game. Number one in the UK charts was Wet, Wet, Wet with Love Is All Around Us. It felt like it was number one for months, if you recall. In the US, it was heavy rock domination, as All For One were at number one with I Swear. And in Australia, the top-selling album this year was Nirvana Unplugged in New York. In the news this month, Amazon was founded by Jeff Bezos. The film Forrest Gump was released. Now, if anyone you know ever uses that box of chocolates line still, you have to question that friendship, right? Tonya Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, was sentenced to two years in prison for the attack on American Olympic figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. Alexander Lukashenko was inaugurated as the first president of Belarus. The Queen opened the, the new HQ of MI6 on the banks of the River Thames in London. And Tony Blair won the Labour Party leadership following the death of John Smith, defeating John Prescott and Margaret Beckett. Do you recall that devastating line that David Cameron delivered to Tone at the first Prime Minister's questions? You were the future once. How devastating is that? So did you guess the month and year? It was July 1994. Not again. Maybe next week. Okay, before we start, we have one advert today from my good friends at Canva. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do as host of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. But the creative process hasn't always been easy, especially for me where design has never been a strength of mine to say the least. You will see that when you look at some of my efforts, design have been pretty dreadful and I cringe when I look at them. So say me and Dahl that the Kings of Leon will be proud of that output. But as I now produce a weekly video and post at least two other pieces of design content a week, it's really important to me more than ever it's of high quality. And this is where Canva for Teams comes in, as with their templates and the way everything on Canva is so straightforward and intuitive, it makes it easy for me to produce effective and consistent posts. So if you're producing content for your social channels or have put off doing so as it can be a bit daunting, you don't need to wait any longer. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash truecrime. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash truecrime for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash True crime. Today's story comes from Sorkham in Devon, which is about 240 miles southwest of London and just over 25 miles southeast of Plymouth. 
It's a beautiful and quaint location, which is overrun with tourists in the summer, enjoying the beautiful beaches and the water sports in the area. But trust me, if you want to live there, or even buy a beer, you need deep pockets. It's believed that Tennyson's famous poem, Crossing the Bar, was inspired by a visit to Salkham during the 19th century. That refers to the bar at the mouth of the estuary, and not the king's head. Anyway, enough culture for one week, let's get on with the story. When we pick things up in July 1994, 22-year-old Sandra Parkinson was living and working in Salkham. She adored the place, she loved spending time there. Her home was with her family just south of Glasgow, but she'd always dreamt of travelling the world on cruise ships. But to work in this industry, you need experience of the hospitality business. So in 1993, Sandra spent the summer working at the Grafton Hotel in Salkham. And she enjoyed it so much that she headed back for the 1994 summer season. And it's not hard to see why. Sandra was fun, she was sociable, as you have to be working a season in the hospitality industry. And she really enjoyed building the relationships with guests and her fellow workers at the hotel. She was very fit and physically active. And Salkham was a lovely place for her to walk and run, with fabulous views both in the town and on the spectacular cliffs looking out to sea. It's a stunning location. She also enjoyed a routine, and was known for going for a walk or a run most afternoons, normally on the cliff tops near the hotel. And one Wednesday in July, a stunningly hot day with unbroken blue skies, Sandra wasn't working a shift until that evening, so she set off for a run in the afternoon. But she didn't return. When she didn't turn up for the evening shift, the alarm was immediately raised, as she was incredibly reliable, and she never missed a shift. The police were called, and when they looked in her room, they saw that all her personal effects were still there, including her bank card. This immediately heightened concern for Sandra's safety. The first lines of inquiry were the other staff at the hotel and the guests. Had she gone off with one of them willingly, or been taken against her will? Did Sandra have a boyfriend was a question that needed to be answered, and it appeared she didn't, as she was focused purely on her career and her dreams of working on the cruise ships. As Sandra wasn't from the area, there was no network of friends in the town who had known her for years and who could provide any information about her. So detectives made inquiries locally and they started to search where they knew she had gone. The terrain was difficult with cliffs, a variety of paths crisscrossing these cliffs and some pretty dense undergrowth. Had Sandra fallen or had some other accident or had she been harmed? It was clear that whatever had happened, if Sandra was still alive, she had to be found soon and police made appeals via the press for any sightings of Sandra. But then, lying in thick undergrowth, about 45 feet from the path, dogs brought in to help the search discovered Sandra's body. She was naked and the clothing she'd been wearing had been used as a ligature to strangle her, and some of the clothing had been used as a gag on her mouth. It was established that Sandra had also been raped. At just 22, all Sandra's dreams of travelling the world were over, and where she'd been left was so close to the beach where families had been enjoying the beautiful weather carefree while the most horrendous crime had occurred 
just out of their sight. Detectives knew they were dealing with a dangerous killer who had raped and murdered Sandra and then thrown her body down the cliff in broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon at a spot where they could well have been seen or heard. And the problem they had is that in a holiday resort such as Sulcombe, there was a chance that a key witness may have already moved on not being aware they held vital information about the murder. And in the transient nature of a seaside resort, it would have been easier for the killer to move on if they were not from the area. In many investigations we hear about on this podcast, people become suspects if they suddenly move on from the area, but that was not the case here. Sandra's devastated older brothers, Graham and Gary, travelled from Scotland to help the police inquiry and they took part in a reconstruction of Sandra's last moments. They walked behind a young red-haired accounts clerk who was dressed in the grey leotard and black cycling shorts worn by Sandra when she was killed. Detective Superintendent Phil Pike appealed for people to come forward, including two women, He'd been seen taking photographs on the afternoon that Sandra went missing, about a hundred yards from the murder scene. One was in her twenties, the other in her thirties. They wore bright berets, calf-length skirts and baggy blouses carrying a rucksack, and detectives hoped that one of their photographs had captured the killer. Detective Pike confirmed that thousands of motorists had been interviewed at checkpoints that had been set up all around Sulcombe and there had been a huge response from the public to nationwide publicity about Sandra's murder. Indeed, a number of police forces had put potential suspects forward to the local police, and each of these people had to be investigated thoroughly, interviewed potentially, and then eliminated. A number of people were going into local police stations to make witness statements of what they'd seen and any suspicious people they'd seen around the area, and some also took in their photographs from their holiday in the hope that this could help the police inquiry. Other people who'd been in Sulcombe at the time of the murder, but had already gone home, also sent their holiday snaps to the police. And detectives were particularly hopeful that the photographs taken of the shore from a man out sailing in the bay on the day that Sandra's killed may have photographed Sandra's last walk and may also have identified her killer. Detective Pike said, We hope to release the picture tomorrow. There's a figure walking along the coastal path, and though it's only a dot, it could be Sandra. If it isn't Sandra, that person could still have important information on her murder. But unfortunately, this lead, like so many others in this fast-moving investigation, didn't progress any further. In the wide-ranging inquiry, three Devon detectives travelled to Sandra's family home in Ayrshire to speak to friends and ex-boyfriends. They were said to be particularly interested in a 42-year-old ex-boyfriend, a second-hand car salesman, who sold pictures of Sandra to a national newspaper. Sandra's family and the police were appalled and criticised the man and the paper. It's amazing, isn't it? We see it so much that even during something as serious as a murder investigation, there are people out there who will still prioritise personal financial gain. Detective Pike added, The team will research every aspect of Sandra's life. Anyone who knows her will be interviewed. Meanwhile, on the ground in Sulcombe, a team of over 80 police officers 
continued to search a large area of cleared undergrowth, over 10,000 square metres, close to the murder scene, and collected any items that could be of interest for forensic examination. But with detectives becoming increasingly frustrated by the lack of meaningful leads, they started exploring other possibilities. They discovered that in these pre-internet days, Sandra had placed Lonely Hearts adverts in local papers in the Sorkham area the year before. She'd also placed adverts in local shops, asking for extra work as a cleaner or maybe babysitting. Detective Pike said, One or two people have come forward and said they met her through these contact columns, one of which was a local free ads paper, believed to be the Totnes free ads. We are appealing to people who met her this way to contact us and we are researching the archives of local papers and asking at local shops to see if an advert along these lines was placed. We are told that she placed an advert in the Heart Search and Romance column of a local paper the previous summer. It said, red-headed 21-year-old girl seeks the man of her dreams. We understand she received replies to this advert We don't want to speculate that the killer is just local. She may well have advertised in national publications. So had Sandra been killed by a man she'd been on a date with in the past? Or had she arranged to meet her killer for the first time on the cliff path where she was murdered? But then came the lead detectives had been waiting for. On the 12th of August, they received a call from Cambridgeshire Police asking if they were interested in Sandra Parkinson. Over 260 miles away near Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire, a walker saw what they thought was a dummy hanging from a tree. On closer inspection it was a body, the body of 33-year-old Alan Connor. He'd wrapped twine around his neck and looped it around the tree branch to take his own life. Close to where he was found was a plastic bag containing a wallet, a little bit of cash, a watch and a donor card, which is how he was identified as Connor. On his body were three notes which showed he was responsible for Sandra's murder and DNA taken from his body would later confirm this. In one note he wrote This letter is to the mother and brothers of Sandra Parkinson. Please, I'm sorry for what I did to her. Please believe me, it wasn't me. It was the other bastard I can't live with. I beg that you can forgive me for what I did. In another he wrote I wish I could be as strong as your sister. Maybe he was trying to be complimentary about Sandra, but really the note had the opposite effect, a very upsetting effect, suggesting that Sandra had fought hard for her life when she encountered Connor. In his third note he said, I hope you noticed I chose a crap tree. I didn't want to damage a good one. As you can imagine, there's been much speculation about these notes, by people who believe they have expertise in this area. One of these, Tony Black, who worked at Broadmoor, said, Many people who commit violent crimes blame all sorts of factors, but there is a group who are well aware that they can't control themselves. Was this Connor? If we are being generous, I think we can say it's clear that Connor could no longer live with himself or that part of him that was capable of carrying out such a terrible attack. But when I look at the notes, really I see just a man feeling self-pity, even when he took his own life, blaming another part of him for the murder, not taking responsibility. 
For Sandra's family, there were mixed feelings. Of course, there was relief that the man who had killed Sandra had been found. But there was also frustration they would not face justice in a court of law. So just who was Alan Connor? He was a former miner from Yorkshire who appeared to be living a relatively normal, straightforward life and maybe even became a father until 1986 when he was convicted of abduction and the rape of a 16-year-old girl at an old colliery near Doncaster. The young woman who was tied up was found by her dad screaming with pain. The victim bravely helped police produce a photo-fit picture which looked the spitting image of Connor. She also identified him from 700 pictures shown to her by police and in addition to this, she also managed to select him at an identity parade. For this crime, Connor served four years of a six-year sentence. But once it was complete, he cut all ties with family and friends and became what I suppose we might call a drifter. He didn't work anymore, he didn't claim benefits and he seemed to spend his life moving from one place to another committing petty crime to get by. As if to escape from his past and could be somewhere where he was not known, where no one knew what he had done and what he was capable of. And why Sulcombe? Why was he in Sulcombe? It's unclear. But seaside towns do seem to attract these sort of people, drifters that is, but he certainly had no known contacts or connections to the town. Detectives found out he'd set up a hideout near where Sandra had been attacked on the cliff path. Had he watched Sandra of her regular routine and selected her and waited for her on this basis? Or was it a random attack? Four days earlier, another woman had been seized by a stranger on the same path, but she managed to escape, so it suggests the latter. This woman reported the attack after Sandra's murder. And Connor left the town a few days after the killing, heading to North Devon, then Gloucester, and then Huntingdon. Detectives were certain he'd killed before, and he was suspected of committing eight rapes and sexual assaults in the Dern Valley in his home area, South Yorkshire, between 1983 and 86. But the DNA results would later show he was not responsible for these crimes. But the DNA also showed he was guilty of one other sexual attack, a just horrendous horrendous attack. After midnight mass finished at a church in Ludlow, Shropshire, in the early hours of Christmas Day in 1992, a 67-year-old former magistrate who was a church warden was walking home through the churchyard when she was attacked and raped. Connor had warned her during the attack, if you don't stop screaming, I'll kill you. John Evans, the chief constable of Devon and Cornwall Police, said that Sandra's murder highlighted the need for a national DNA database to hold genetic fingerprints of sex offenders. He said that if DNA testing had been compulsory, with the information held nationally, we would not have had a murder because we may have detected this man 19 months ago. And it was directly because of Sandra's murder that a national DNA database was indeed established. That was part of her legacy. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It is, of course, a terribly sad and shocking story. A calm, quiet area with families and friends all around enjoying the outdoors in beautiful surroundings. 
a place for fun and happy memories. It is this contrast which makes the murder quite so shocking. The life of 22-year-old Sandra taken when she had so much to live for by a total stranger where people were just metres away from her. We can't help but ask the question why, what made him progress from sexual assault to murder. As you'll know if you listen to this podcast, I'm very wary of psychologists attempting to understand this behaviour. But I've heard it said he was a classic Jekyll and Hyde figure. Someone who really wants to behave and do the right thing, but can't stop the monster emerging. Not a man who took time over the strategy or planning of a killing, but just reacted when the situation occurred. And maybe he became a drifter, as it kept him away from others, as he knew he would get into situations where he wouldn't be able to control himself. We will never know for sure. Likewise, we don't know if he's offended many times before. Nothing's come to light. What we do know for certain is that Sandra's life was taken for no reason. Just a normal day when she was going about her normal routine. If she had left the hotel a few minutes earlier or later or stopped to speak to someone, she would have avoided being attacked, maybe, and it would have been someone else. These are all questions and thoughts that can't be answered, but that her family and friends must suffer every day, and our thoughts are with them. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. It's never dull. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime for over 55 bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. Plus, the current competition is to win an online immersive crime game. Sounds good? Get yourself over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And a huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Craig Danson, Tracy Gemmell, Jasmine, Harry, Pam King, Linda Delu and Rory Mackay. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. And finally, if you do join me on Patreon on an annual basis, there is still a 15% discount on an annual support package. So just head over there right now. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, it's always the others, we know this, please stay classy. Cheerio for now.